Welcome to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. My name is Katharina Menke, and today I'll be speaking to Rim Gerahab, who is a senior economist at the Policy Center for the New South, a think tank based in Morocco. Her work at the Policy Center focuses on energy issues and their impacts on economic growth and long-term development. She joined the Policy Center in 2014 after finishing her state engineering degree from the National Institute of Statistics and Applied Economics. Today we'll be talking about how the disruptions induced by the war in Ukraine are impacting the daily life of people in Africa and the impacts of the current events on the energy transition on the continent. As we have been witnessing in the last months, the unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine has led to disruptions all around the world, which are also strongly being felt in Africa. African countries are facing high energy prices, disruptions in food supplies and generally high inflation levels. In this episode, we will discuss how currently high energy prices are impacting government budgets and debt positions of African countries. We will also speak about the implications for access to modern energy and investments in the clean energy transition on the continent. This is the second part of two episodes on the effects of the Russian invasion in Ukraine on Africa from an energy perspective. The first episode has recently been published and focused on how the energy crisis is impacting Africa's oil and gas sector. This episode was recorded on Friday, the 16th of September 2022. Welcome to the Science for Energy podcast, Mrs. Berab. I'm very happy to speak to you today about the effects of the Russian invasion in Ukraine on Africa from an energy perspective, with a focus on the implications for the energy transition and the daily life of people across the continent. Before speaking about that, it would be great if you could quickly tell me more about yourself and what brought you to working on energy-related subjects at the Policy Center for the New South. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be, to be part of this podcast. So, yes, my name is Rim Barhab. I am a senior economist working at the Policy Center for the New South, which is a Moroccan-based think tank. I specialize in, in energy policy and, and more uh, broadly on energy economics. So I have been working on these issues for the past few years, and uh, it has been a great interest of our center, uh, given the importance of, uh, of energy as a driver for economic growth and, uh, and development. So I'll be happy to answer your questions. Thank you. That sounds interesting. So now let's directly dive into the first topic we want to cover today, um, which is namely the energy crisis and how it affects the daily life of people in Africa. So to start with, could you describe how the governments in African countries are reacting to the increases in energy prices? For example, have fuel subsidies been introduced or price caps been implemented to shield consumers and companies from rocket high prices? Yes, this is a very, very good question. But before answering, let me first uh I would like to premise that the African continent is, uh, is very diverse. So while I will discuss average uh, trends and figures, we should keep in mind that they had important disparities by subregions or countries. So as you mentioned, African governments, as elsewhere, confront difficult policy choices as they try to shield their people from um, record uh, food prices and soaring energy costs. So they have indeed introduced a variety of policy measures The most notable one is uh, to try to limit the rise in domestic prices as international prices increased, either by cutting fuel taxes 
or providing direct price subsidies. But such support measures, uh, in turn, can create new pressure Uh, new pressures on budgets that are already strained by the pandemic. So basically, what these governments try to do is to limit international price pass through to their domestic markets, but it might not be the best solution on the long term, as uh, price signals are very crucial to let demand and supply adjust and induce and induce uh, a demand response in which high prices encourage people, among other things, to be more energy efficient. So many uh, international organizations, like the International Monetary Fund, actually advise to allow high uh, global prices to pass through to the domestic economy, but at the same time protect vulnerable households that would be affected by these increases. So that's um, seen as ultimately less costly than keeping prices artificially low for all, irrespective of uh, their ability to pay. However, not all countries are able to follow the same path. So where subsidies exist, the pacing of price adjustments and the extent of which social uh, safety nets are used uh, will, will differ from one country to another. So you already said that those government measures are putting a huge burden on government budgets. Um, how are the high energy prices, as well as the government measures that you just mentioned, concretely affecting the government budgets in African countries? Can you already see an effect? I mean, the effect will be certainly expected uh, because as, as we established, high energy prices are leading to uneven and, and divergent energy implications across the African continent. So for energy importing countries, uh, they must bear the full load of supply risks, unpredictable costs, as well as potentially social unrest, while energy exporting countries and um, transition hubs could benefit from the EU race to find new suppliers, allowing them, among other things, to mitigate the shock of price volatility and inflation. However, in both cases, government measures like subsidy programs create an additional burden on governments amid tightened fiscal space and spending pressures on other priority. So basically, in countries where subsidy programs are in place, the costs of this program Uh, are, are rising due to higher prices. So to finance these costs, governments are mobilizing resources, including expanding budget allocations or withdrawing from price stabilization fund. So similarly, the expansion of new subsidies programs in other countries are introducing new costs that need to be financed and budgeted. So if price pressures and crisis conditions persist, uh, these measures will require significant cumulative resources and pose serious risks for energy sector performance as well as fiscal su sustainability. So the longer these measures last, the higher the risks that some of the temporary measure could become increasingly difficult to reserve, uh, to reverse, sorry, thus creating new challenges for future reforms. Due to the rising energy prices and the economic slowdowns linked to the war, interest rates are expected to substantially rise or are already rising. How is this affecting the debt position of African countries, especially with regard that um, positions are probably in a bad state after the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, for African countries, um, the conflict second order effect combined a series of existing economic and debt challenges that were uh, heightened, as you mentioned, by the coronavirus pa pandemic. So uh, to prevent the possibility of more sustained inflationary pressures, 
Many central banks in advanced economies have tightened their monetary policy by signaling earlier than expected increases in interest rates, which may result in higher debt servicing costs for developing countries. And uh, this is especially true since many uh, developing economies, including in Africa, have limited monetary and fiscal space because of the COVID crisis. And uh, even more so, uh, central banks in many emerging markets have also taken cue from their advanced uh, economies uh, counterparts. And today, about 40% of emerging and developing countries' central banks have already raised their key interest rates in the last years. So according to the um, IMF, around 23 African countries are now either bankrupt or at high risk of debt distress. So actually debt level in Africa have not been as high as they are today in over a decade. So with debt service sucking up increasingly large proportions of, of budgets and revenues, a wave of, uh, of defaults uh, in the world's most vulnerable countries is likely to occur even faster than expected. So I'll give some numbers to illustrate this. So um, the debt to GDP ratio for low, low and middle income countries increased by an, around 9 percentage points in 2020 compared to an annual increase of 1.9% uh, the decade beforehand. Also of Africa's external government debt, around 75% is denominated in US dollars. So with the US Federal Reserve signaling significant tightening of monetary policy, um, this is likely to devaluate local currency in African countries against the dollar, thus increasing the cost of servicing existing debt in real term, while potentially increasing the cost of future borrowing. So this risks a so-called taper tantrum, where investors exit emerging markets and the cost of borrowing increases. Okay, we now spoke a lot about the economic and debt challenges the energy crisis is causing. Just to finish um, this first part on how the energy crisis is impacting the daily life of people in Africa, I have one remaining question. How is the general inflation and especially the increase in energy prices affecting energy access of poor households across Africa? Are recent gains in fighting energy poverty reversed, for example, because people shift again from gas for cooking uh, to coal and firewood? Yes, this is a very good question and one of um, the most crucial challenges facing Africa. So as we saw, the overlapping crisis uh, that the world has witnessed since 2020 uh, are affecting many parts of the continent's energy system, including to some extent reversing the positive trends in improving access to modern energy uh, that uh, the continent achieved so far. So as an example, the International Energy Agency estimates that there are around 4% more people living without electricity in Africa in 2021 compared to uh, 2019. So these crises are also uh, deepening financial difficulties of utilities, thus increasing risks of blackout and rationing of electricity. And as a result, they may contribute to a sharp increase in extreme poverty in sub-Saharan Africa, with the number of people both affected by food and energy crisis even quadrupling in some areas. So I'd like to note that um, these issues are not limited to the African continent specifically. We've seen that in many regions of the world, they are faced with similar issues of reversing back to other uh, more, more so and so polluting fossil fuels for electricity generation, even in Europe. And many countries have reverted back to coal and nuclear, and many are facing 
new threats of power outages. However, the, the picture is not completely bleak in Africa, so there have been some positive developments despite the ongoing global uh, disruption. So countries like Ghana, uh, Kenya or Rwanda are still on track for full electricity access by 2030 and thus offer success stories that other countries can follow provided they have the adequate institutional framework and regulation in place. One thing is also certain is that the goal of universal access to modern energy calls for important investments. So the IEA estimates it's around $25 billion per year. So this is around 1% of the current global energy investments available today, which is not sufficient, and is similar to the cost of building just one large liquefied natural gas terminal, for instance. So stimulating more investment requires um, an international supports, uh, also aided by stronger national institutions on the ground, laying out clear access or clear energy access strategies. Thank you. That was a very insightful overview on the hardship and challenges the energy crisis is causing across the African continent. I would now like to shift the focus more to the energy sector itself in Africa. So in our last podcast episode, we covered the effects of the crisis on Africa's oil and gas sector. And based on this, It would be very interesting to now speak to you about the effects on the energy transition on the continent. So in the last months, several new gas production projects have been announced in African countries. And if those projects indeed become reality, do you see them as a chance for new revenue creation that can, among other things, be invested in the energy transition or more as a risk since they increase the climate crisis and potentially build a long-term dependency on fossil fuel resources and thereby set back the clean transition? Yeah, you really, really tapped into a very, very uh, essential issue. So actually, both scenarios are possible. So we don't, we can't um, know for sure, given the, the state of the instability uh, and uncertainty that the world is facing right now. But what we know is that it is true that, yes, Western governments, especially those in Europe, um, in their quest for uh, short-term solutions to the current high energy prices, are multiplying agreements with resource-rich African countries for new hydrocarbon projects. The issue is that the oil and gas sector carry very long-term consequences. So for producers to be able to bring much more oil and gas to markets, they need to invest today in their production capacity and in their future production. Yet the oil and gas investments are a very capital-intensive business with long payback periods. So for investors to commit significant capital, they need to be confident that by the time their products reach the market, the demand will still be there and will remain there for many for many years so that their investments will be cost effective or cost efficient. The problem is that not only are these Western governments encouraging developing countries to accelerate their phasing out of fossil fuels, but they themselves are committing to killing demand for these products in the coming years in their quest for decarbonization. So this seems like a contradictory uh, situation where These countries are seeking for more oil and gas now, but they will not be seeking them in the future. Furthermore, scaling up 
or rapidly scaling up oil and gas production in Africa will also require significant investments. However, in many in the recent years, um, international oil companies have drastically reduced their financing of hydrocarbon projects in Africa due to the growing calls uh, issued by several European countries for a faster energy transition. Therefore, while Africa has abundant sunshine and wind, it has very little infrastructure to harness it, and it also faces a much higher financial financial costs for green projects, which are considered riskier investments. So this has prompted many African leaders to really denounce what they see uh, as an energy hypocrisy and a double standard with regards to climate action. Mm, That makes sense. And how much of those new projects will be focused on exports to the European Union? And how much will they instead be focused on um, meeting local population energy needs? And related to this, what is the view of the civil society, not only the African leaders in Africa, on the new gas project? So, so yeah, I can't, I cannot give you an exact number, as this requires, uh, you know, conducting quantitative analysis in order to estimate these numbers. Also, the official uh, governments have not shared official numbers. But what transpires from the trend is that many African countries are now shifting their focus to local markets in order to prioritize meeting their domestic demand rather than prioritizing export to European and, and Asian markets. With regards to, to, to your questions about the civil society, I think that similarly to, to the stance of, of, uh, of the government, I think that they see natural gas as an important fuel in their energy mix. And they see it as a cleaner fuel uh, compared to coal and oil, especially since access to uh, to energy in many sub-Saharan African countries is still uneven. So this population may uh, be tempted to use gas rather than more polluting fuels such as uh, coal, uh, etc. So I think that the importance of natural gas, unlike in European countries, is still is still relevant to their to their daily lives. Okay, and apart from um, all these new gas projects, do we also see new investments on corporations with European countries in renewable energies taking place? Or does the short-term focus really seems to lie on gas only? From my perspective, I think that Europe is now working on these two fronts. So we discussed its quest for oil and gas to meet the immediate energy demand. And it has been dealing mostly with oil and gas producing countries in Africa. But, uh, but Europe is still set on decarbonizing its economy by 2050 and has adopted a new strategy, the, the Repower EU strategy, which focuses a lot on renewable energy and green hydrogen as alternative for Russian oil and gas. And this creates new opportunities of cooperation with African countries that have a lot of reserves of renewable energy or mineral uh, reserves. So because the deployment of low carbon technologies cannot be done without mining, And minerals such as copper, lithium, cobalt, and others are very essential to the energy transition. And some African countries are very rich with these minerals. Actually, according to some recent statistics, the continent uh, has more than 40% of the world's reserves of cobalt, manganese, and 
platinum and critical which are critical minerals for batteries and hydrogen technologies more specifically south africa the democratic republic of congo and mozambique currently hold significant share of of these of the world's production of these minerals but many other countries may have undiscovered deposits so however the main challenge for the mining sector is to is how to decarbonize the production of these minerals and better communicate their crucial role in the energy transition to the public. In addition to critical minerals, some countries in Africa are also among the forerunners for wind and solar technologies, like, like Morocco, for instance, and, and others have great potential for, for green hydrogen production, which is one of the cornerstones of the Repower EU strategy. So I think that the challenge now is to create a comprehensive cooperation framework that avoids locking in resource-rich countries in fossil fuels and stranding their assets with this move towards decarbonization, but rather um, invest revenues from oil and gas experts into the development of renewable energy strategy. And this shows also how complicated the energy transition will be and the inevitable tensions between urgent needs and long-term goals. Yeah, thanks a lot for these interesting insights. I have one remaining question before we finish this episode. I think that all around the world, um, the current energy crisis has put the issue of energy security into a new light, with renewables increasingly being seen as a way to reduce vulnerability to external shocks of fossil fuel prices. Do you think that this situation could lead to a new assessment of the value of renewables by political leaders of African countries, and therefore also to a reorientation of energy strategies across the continent, especially regarding its huge potential for solar and wind production? Yes, absolutely. In recent years, we've witnessed uh, the emergence of new trends, primarily due to technological advances and global policies aimed at decarbonizations from numerous countries. And at the same time, um, the prospects of peak oil demand in the not so distant future has become a topic of debate in many energy circles And this peak demand would have significant geopolitical and geoeconomic consequences for oil producing and importing countries alike. So in the context of an increased alignment of climate policies, the geopolitics of and security of oil and gas seems to be progressively shifting to the security of the energy transition. And this ongoing transition to renewable is not just a shift from one fuel mix to another, but it involves a much more profound transformation um, of the world's energy systems that will have major social, economic and political implications far beyond the energy sector. And this shift will also have a different implication for particularly oil and gas exporting countries. And we're discussing here the case of Africa. Uh, and many oil and gas producing countries in Africa still do not have diversified economies and are highly dependent on oil revenues for most of their budgets. So declines in revenues due to the decarbonization can have a destabilizing effect, particularly on countries with fragile political institutions. Conversely, countries that are deprived of oil and gas resources, but which have significant renewable energy resources can benefit from this transformation by capitalizing on clean technologies. And I think that many African countries are 
already reorienting their energy strategies to include sustainability issues, of course, at different levels. Uh, we cannot speak about all countries of Africa, but about specific one. And Morocco is an example of that. So the country has, uh, has adopted a very forward-looking energy strategy back in 2009, which is still the current framework for action today. And this strategy has set out an ambition for leadership in renewable energy, and it has achieved numerous progress in this, uh, in this area. So, for instance, today, the share of renewable energy in the installed capacity has reached 37%, and around 27% of the electricity that is produced, effectively produced in Morocco, comes from renewable energy. And the country has set higher targets for the upcoming years. Countries like Kenya also have transformed their energy institutional framework to enable the deployment of off-grid renewable energy like solar home system in order to improve access to energy. And we've seen their electrification rates have increased tremendously in the past 10 years thanks to that and thanks to the use of solar energy as a way to solar energy and also mini grids and off grids as a way to widen the access to electricity. I think that the difficulty now for the continent is to scale up these initiatives and to find balance between the economic growth priorities, energy security priorities, as well as energy transition. So this also raises the, the, the question of the pace of the energy transition in Africa and in the developing world in general, as most of these countries have limited financial capacity to finance the energy transition. Great. Thanks a lot for your insights. Um, I think we learned a lot about how the disruptions in the world are impacting the daily life of people in Africa, but also government budgets and the energy sector. And you also provided a very interesting outlook um, in the potential future of the energy sector in Africa. So thanks a lot. Have a good day and hopefully hear you soon another time. Thank you very much for the invitation and I hope that we'll cross paths in the future again. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy podcast, recorded and produced in Paris by Katharina Menke with the help of Philip Forster, Joyo Altese and the team of Radio Germain, the Sciences Po Students Radio. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or wherever you are listening. If you are an undergraduate student and you are interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.